where you are on life's journey, you are welcome here. No matter who you are or where you are on life's journey, you are welcome here. And you are wanted and you are valued here. We have stories of faith that connect us, whether you're in Connecticut, Colorado, the United States, or Europe, or anywhere in the world. As you noticed in our children's church story this morning, we are looking at the loaves and fishes story again today. And I'm wondering if you noticed a distinction between the story that Amelia told us and the one that we've been listening to. It seems as though the story that is in all four Gospels is the one about the feeding of the 5,000 where there's five loaves and two fishes. I'm guessing that's the one that is most familiar to you. When people talk about the five, talk about the loaves and the fishes, they seem to talk about the feeding of the 5,000 and the 12 baskets that are left over. But there's another story, another feeding story that really comes very closely right after that one. It's only in Matthew and Mark, so maybe that's why it doesn't get uh, the play of the first story. But this is the feeding of the 4,000. And as Amelia told us, it's quite likely that there were more than 12,000 people present. This one has seven loaves and two small fish. And only seven loaves, uh, seven basket filled, are filled as leftovers. So people who like numerology can play with that a little bit. I'm not going to do that this morning, but I just want to um, bring to the fore that there's more than one story. And there's more than one feeding miracle story. In fact, one of the things that they have in common is that at that juncture where Jesus is moved with compassion and decides that everyone needs to be fed, the disciples in both accounts, seemingly one right after the other, say, how, how are we ever going to do this? So I take comfort in that. Now, they've already been through it once. <laughs> so now I guess they haven't quite got the repetition down. Or maybe there's just something to how the Gospels were pieced together. Maybe they weren't that close as they are represented in chapter and verse. And as I was contemplating the loaves and fishes, both versions, about halfway through the week, I began to consider these feeding stories as communion stories. Now, granted, we are in the context of World Communion Sunday. But it occurred to me that our celebration of communion could just as well be founded on these feeding stories, where each and every person who was present, when whatever was available was blessed and broken and distributed, all were fed. It also harkens back to the manna in the wilderness for me. And one of the questions I was asking throughout the week of myself was, what do the feeding stories teach us about communion? And if you like to play with words like I do, you know, it just takes a moment to realize that communion could, from communion we have common and communication and community. 
Common meaning the experience of belonging to all, holding things in common. And communication, the exchange of information. And community, which is a sharing in common interest. It's true that we are living through a challenging and deeply unsettling time where common feels fractured and communication feels unreliable, where community feels, or common interest at least, feels somewhat lost. But if we take the gospel story seriously, this deeply unsettled and challenging time may become a gift for us. And these feelings aren't new. In 1968, the day before he died, Thomas Merton was speaking to religious leaders around the world. And he says, we don't need to discover a new unity. We need to rediscover our original unity, the essential unity at the heart of all life. We are already one. The challenge is to become what we already are. And Thomas Merton knew this as a man who not only lived a deeply religious life, a deeply Christian religious life, but he also studied Buddhism very deeply, and he lived on the fringes. His vantage point was from the margin. He lived a monastic life where he was often in uh, little cells or hermitages. He spent many, many hours writing, uh, many hours in silent contemplation. So there was something about the solitude and the movement away from the center of life that allowed him to see this unity. It's hard to see this unity when you're in the middle of it. Consider some of the family gatherings that you might have been part of or community gatherings where you might have been part of. If you've ever had the vantage point of looking on from a distance, or maybe here in our sanctuary space, the the choir loft, the vantage point of looking at an assembly from the choir loft is very different from sitting in the middle of it. And it's worth considering that the movement of the Gospels is from the fringes to the center. From the outlying villages and towns to the heart of life that is symbolized in the temple. And each year thousands journeyed to Jerusalem, even more than those who were present at the feeding stories. They journeyed to Jerusalem to celebrate liberation from enslavement which in itself is kind of strange, that their celebration took them to the very place where the rule of an oppressive empire was in full effect. They got right into the heart of it. And these teachings and formation of Jesus out on the countryside and in the desert or on a mountaintop all take place in the community that has formed with Jesus. 
And what we see in this community is that the mute are speaking. People were finding their voice, like the composers that Robert lifted up to us this morning. Those compositions have been around for a long time. Why are they not on the syllabus of every music student? The maimed were whole. People were, con- were considered whole as they were, not by comparison. We've said before that comparison is a thief of joy. I think comparison is just a thief. And the lame were walking. People were moving through and beyond artificial limitations. There was movement. We're told that the blind were seeing. People were seeing what had been in plain sight all along. They were seeing that they too were created in the image of God's love, in the image of God, and worthy to be loved. Now, I can't speak to the empires of the ancient world, but if they are anything like the empire of this nation, the foundation of power and authority is deeply, deeply flawed. It resulted in an enormous and concerted effort to protect and further perpetuate something that just is not true. There is no supreme race, there is no supreme religion, and there is no supreme region. On World Communion Sunday, we're invited to expand our perspective and to remember this truism and to consider some foundational questions. What do we hold in common? What are we communicating through our actions and our inactions? our selections of music and our selections of scripture? Who is the focus of our interest and energy? Now, if we were just to go about business as usual that doesn't exist anymore, but we still can operate that way, We might not be learning new things, but I want to tell you a story about a friend who who just got a new job. And her job is to help people who are living um, in apartment buildings that is going to be renovated, move out, and settle into a hotel in a temporary situation, and then move back in. And these are people that, that need help with these kinds of tasks. Like Beth and I needed help moving out and moving in. And now we're living with a little bit of the disorientation of which hallway to go down for the office or the bedroom or which door goes outside and which one goes in the closet. Very real disorientation. So this person's job is to help people through that disorienting time. And the the details of the position have started to become really clear, and there was a lot of discomfort that she was feeling about it. Like, oh, you know, that's a lot of responsibility. I don't know if I can do that. And that's a lot of lives that are going to be upended. And, you know, I'm not sure I can do it. 
But then all of a sudden, she pivoted. And she had a shift of perspective. And she said, I can do this. Because I have been through moves myself, and I know how disorienting it is. But more importantly, the focus is them, is the people that are moving out, resettling, and then moving back in. It's not about me. And I think that's an important pivot. It's not about me. I can see that other person, and I can be there to help them. And they will all have names eventually. There will be a lot of contact. There will be a relationship for a time. And I'm confident that my friend will be a real instrument of healing because her focus is on the other person and not on her personal discomfort and maybe even concern of whether or not their job is too big. Jesus demonstrates that for us. He had compassion for them. I mean, it took him three days, but he realized that they were hungry. He was able to see the people that were in his midst, all of them. And he knew that they were hungry. I would imagine that it was their common hunger that united them. Sure, as Amelia said, it might have started as curiosity. But curiosity doesn't keep you there for three days. Especially if there's no food. So there was something else happening there. Something worth staying for. Something worth perhaps skipping a meal for. We know Jesus had an unquenchable hunger for the community of God. And maybe the followers had a hunger for what they instinctively knew to be true. Finally, they were hearing something that made sense. Not just something they were asked to buy into or believe or live by. It was something that foundationally really made sense. And I think that's further supported because even those who resisted the ways and teaching of Jesus, and there were many, I think they also knew them to be true. And here's how we know that. Because if it didn't threaten to change the foundation of power and authority, there would be no need to resist. You don't argue with people you don't care about. You don't eliminate people that aren't a threat. Not at that level of an empire. That would be a waste of resource. You only target the people that are truly a threat. And this was threatening. There would be no need to resist or restrain and even retaliate with force. So if force is being used, you know something important is happening. That's the deterrent, isn't it? That's what's supposed to clue people to get away and go home and go back. But the Spirit of God doesn't let us rest in that. 
That's not what the gospel message is. And that's why the discomfort and the deep unsettledness of this could become a gift. Because it could force the recognition and the giving voice and the movement to the power and authority that is God's alone. These communal gatherings with Jesus were life-changing. They were life-altering. They were pivotal moments. Have you had moments like that? They communicated and demonstrated the experience of life in common and the power and presence of love. These feeding stories invite us to remember the original unity expressed, which coincidentally and most simply is in the sharing of a meal.